back to the podcast. My name is Katie Delbo and you are listening to Let It Out hosted by me. This is a show where I have conversations with fascinating people about everything I'm curious about and hopefully you're curious about. I love to ask the questions that you guys talk about with me in the Facebook group, the listener Facebook group, and today's episode is really about that because I have an emotional eating expert, someone who has been really instrumental in my life and kind of set me on the path or did really set me on the path of learning about weight and dieting as a social issue and helping me to stop feeling crazy around food. Isabel Fox and Duke is back on the podcast. She's been on the podcast before several times, but not in a couple years. I don't think she's been on the podcast since 2014. So there's a lot of new listeners since then, and if you've heard her on my podcast before, this conversation is different. It's new, it's fresh, and it makes me really happy. It's long, it's intense, we talk about really heavy topics. It's not light, <laughs> I'll say that. There are light moments, we laugh, but it's really, really an important conversation, and especially right now. I want to get right to that as quickly as possible, but first I want to thank our sponsor this week, freshbooks.com. Thank you so much for sponsoring the podcast. If you are an entrepreneur, if you are just someone who wants to stay on top of your finances long before tax season, FreshBooks is the way to go. They're great. They help you look like a boss by making these really beautiful invoices where you can change the colors to match your color scheme, which I love. You can add in your logo, which is amazing. And FreshBooks is offering listeners a free 30-day unrestricted trial by going to freshbooks.com slash let it out and entering let it out in the how did you hear about us section. So that's freshbooks.com slash let it out and enter let it out in the how did you hear about us section. Thank you again so much, FreshBooks. I really think the software is amazing and I hope you guys check it out. And thank you so much for being so nice to the sponsors and actually checking them out because I'm very, very careful about who sponsors this podcast. There are things that I genuinely use and love, like FreshBooks. And this podcast is my favorite thing I've ever done. These conversations like this one with Isabel, I think, are so important. And I love that I get to share them and then talk about them further. And I just want to keep doing it. So I'm so grateful for the sponsors Which brings me to today's episode. As I mentioned before, Isabel has been on the podcast several times, but I want to bring her back, and it was two years ago the last time she was on the podcast, but I wanted to bring her back because her work has truly been so meaningful to me. It opened my eyes to a lot of these concepts that I had no idea of before. And I want to basically keep evangelizing her message because it really did change the trajectory of how I saw things like body image and weight in my relationship to food. So what makes Isabel's work unique from anyone else out there in the space is that she's not claiming to, if it's what you want, to help you lose weight or make you thin 
what she's claiming to do, which, by the way, no one can do that. There's no magic wand for that if that's what you're after. But what Isabel is claiming to do, and you can actually do because I did it, is she's claiming to be able to give you your sanity back around food and your body. She will give you your life back so you can find your worth outside of your body. And that's the case for me. It really did help me with that. And it will help you potentially not have to feel like you're scrolling through Instagram and just looking at pretty vegan food in your bed alone or Googling sugar-free, gluten-free, dairy-free recipes in the wee hours or planning your life around your food choices and missing out on your life and your relationships because of your fraught relationship with your body and food. That was the case for me. I felt very much alone. I was very isolated. And then in 2014, I completed her program and it really did completely change my life. It was a gateway for me to learn more about the topics that she talks about, which I've been talking about more on the podcast. She's the one that turned me on to Dr. Linda Bacon, who's been a guest on the podcast and a lot of other people who have been really instrumental in my life. I realized through doing her program that I needed to diversify my hobbies away from just wellness and healthy food and focus my attention more on my work and my relationships and my creativity, not just manipulating my body to look a certain way. And through that, like I said, she opened me up to intuitive eating, health at every size, looking at weight as a social issue, And she's launching that program that I did in 2014. It's called Stop Fighting Food, which means that her free video training series is now available, which covers emotional eating and a lot of these topics. Check that out. It's 100% free. They're short videos that really give you a great introduction to her work. You'll get a really good introduction to her work through today's episode, but definitely check out these videos if any of the things we spoke about resonate with you. I think you might really like them. They might be helpful to you. They definitely are and were to me. Click the link in the show notes to go to those videos or go to bit.ly slash stop fighting food katie. That's bit.ly slash stop fighting food katie because I'm an affiliate for Isabel. So that will let her know that I sent you. And if you do end up signing up for her program, like I said, the videos are free, but you can sign up for her program. And if you do through my link, it helps support my work and the podcast as well as getting you into the program that potentially, I can say will, transform your relationship with yourself and your sanity. So win-win. It's a great way to support my work and the podcast, also Isabel. And if you have any questions on the program, how it works, what it did for me specifically, let me know. I can speak to all of that as a full-on participant because I, in fact, was one. All right, enjoy this very long episode with Isabel. Brace yourself because it's honestly really fast-paced, packed with a ton of information, It's long, it's heavy, like I said, it's not a light, airy-fairy conversation, although there are, you know, moments where it's fun. For the most part, we're really talking about these concepts, so just, you know, kind of brace yourself for that. I'm not talking to a comedian this week, I'm talking to someone who's, who's, it was lovely and very funny, but we just really went deep with her work this week, so enjoy it, maybe take notes, 
Let me know if you have any questions in the listener Facebook group. And I'm going to get right to the talk, but I just actually have one quick final announcement. I'm doing a live podcast episode this week. If you're listening to this, the day it comes out Wednesday, it's tomorrow, Thursday, August 24th at 6.30 p.m. in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York. It's at the End Coffee Shop. It's my favorite coffee shop in Williamsburg, the home of the original unicorn latte. We're going to all get together have a latte, hang out. I'm interviewing the founders. A lot of my friends are coming. You guys, all of my friends are coming. It's all friends. You guys are my friends. Some that I've met already, some that I haven't met yet. We're going to just hang out. They have my books there, so I'll sign books if you want one. Uh, You can bring your book if you have one. We'll give hugs. It'll just be a really great time. So I hope you can come. I hope to see you tomorrow, Thursday, if you're listening to this the day it comes out and enjoy this conversation with Isabel. Again, if you do want to sign up for the program, use the link in the show notes or you know, go to bit.ly slash stopfightingfoodkatie, K-A-T-I-E. And that is an affiliate link. So again, it lets Isabel know that I sent you, helps support the podcast. And I really wanna see what you guys think of the free video training series. Again, that's free. So you might as well check it out. There's nothing to lose. Real quick, one thing that I wanted to add in here is that if you're feeling like you're in a good place with food, if you feel like you're, you've tackled these things, maybe still listen. I know for me, I found it really helpful as a tune-up to continue to listen to Isabel's work and continue to keep myself well-versed in this language because we're constantly bombarded with diet culture and fat phobia in our society that it's really important to keep these messages coming in so i found this really helpful like in present time to have this conversation i just wanted to throw that in there anyway enjoy the episode well welcome back to the podcast i'm so excited that you're here so much has happened since you were last on the podcast you moved out of new york city i moved to new york city so how do you like where you're living now how do you like san francisco I love San Francisco. I mean, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm like having my West Coast moment after having lived in New York for my entire life, pretty much. Um, yeah, I mean, it's really, it's like a different vibe, but San Francisco is also pretty, you know, it's pretty city life-esque, so I'm not, I don't feel too much like a fish out of water, but yeah, it's, it's a good, it's a nice little break uh, after having lived in New York for so long. So yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying it. Do you think you'll come back to New York? Eventually. You know, I don't know. I will say, and I you haven't experienced this yet, so I don't mean to freak you out, although you're from Michigan, so you probably won't mind. I do not miss the winters in New York. Um, I don't miss the winters on the East Coast in general. Um, so I don't know. I'm like pretty, I'm like sitting pretty tight here in SF for the meantime. But yeah. I, you know, who knows? I mean, I'm very open to Whatever. A lot of different options. Yeah, I think it's more likely that I'll move elsewhere in the country or even possibly abroad than I'd move back to New York. But, you know, anything's possible. Yeah, I am dreading the winters because I think it's different to be in the city where in Michigan it was still cold, but I went to my warm house and to my warm car and to the warm right. place I was going. And right. now I'm going to be walking. Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you'll and get it, used to it. <laughs> but it's 90 the day we're recording this, so I don't need to worry about that today. Yeah. Anyway, I've been loving starting this podcast with the present before we get into the past and all the questions that people have and your future. 
I really want to know what have you been realizing, pondering, or excited about really recently, like in the past today, this week, this month? Hmm. Oh my gosh, such a big question. You ask like the juiciest, like biggest questions, right Katie. I know, you're just like, bam. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I've been thinking about all, all sorts of stuff just in my personal life. I mean, the reality of the situation is like, I'm like, well, like 15% of my brain is thinking about like things that would be relevant to listeners. Like I'm reading a really amazing book called the, I'm, re- I'm reading a few different really interesting books. Like right now I'm reading, um, I don't know if you know of Michael A. Singer, but uh, he's just, the, he's this really interesting author who writes about effectively mindfulness and concepts like surrender and kind of like Eastern philosophical concepts. Um, but he has sort of a very specific kind of voice that he writes about these issues with. And he wrote this book called The Surrender Experiment, which is basically memoir style, him talking about like, effectively relinquishing control and just saying yes to whatever kind of happens to his in his life, like not resisting anything that occurs and sort of just comes into the flow of his life, you know, and just sort of saying yes to things that make sense and saying no to things that make sense based on sort of what the universe is clearly presenting him and and sort of not fighting what is happening, whether he likes the thing that's happening or not. So he talks about like saying yes to a job that he wasn't even that interested in because it was like clearly the thing that the universe was presenting with him, presenting him, even though he had a ton of resistance to it, stuff like that. So he talks about sort of how uh, that unfolds for him. And and I'm actually only halfway through the book. So I'm thinking quite a bit about that kind of stuff. And then I will say, guys, just so you know that like we're all human here on the internet, like 85% of my time is spent like obsessing about like whatever the hell else is going on in like my tiny little world, you know, like, you know, what apartment do I want to live in? What's going on in my relationship? Like, right? Like I've got that noise just like everyone else. So I just want to humanize myself there. Yeah, good. Well, that book sounds fascinating. And surrender is such a, and releasing control is such a huge part of your work and dealing with body image and diet culture and all of these things that I've been dealing with. So I want to read that. What what did you say it was called? It's called The Surrender Experiment. Cool. Yeah, Michael Singer. Yeah, he wrote a really he wrote a really interesting, like pretty semi-famous book in the in the in the health self help world that you may have heard of. It's called The Untethered Soul. Oh, I read that. I knew he yeah, said yeah, it yeah. earlier. Yeah, he wrote The Untethered Soul. So this is like the person who wrote The Untethered Soul. This is like his personal memoir of how he practically put some of the things that he talks about in that book into action in his personal life oh rad cool i'm gonna check Mm -hmm. that out that might Mm -hmm. be my next read all right well what i've been pondering and realizing and thinking about for the last couple hours is the email that i just read earlier today from you which was all all your emails are always so good and i highly recommend them and share them all the time but today's was particularly great because it talked about fat phobia and resisting fat phobia and it was something that was really great for me to read and be reminded of and learn again some things so first for people listening can you define fat phobia and then get into how we've internalized it 
Yeah. So for all of those of you who don't know, who haven't listened to my podcasts or in my interviews with Katie in the past, um, you know, I work with women who are struggling in their relationships with food and body, right? And the vast majority of people who are struggling with their relationships with food and body to some extent, right? And we can talk about psychological under underpinnings of food issues and lots of other things. But for the most part, right, this particular form of pathology is triggered by a very specific social environment. And I'm going to go ahead and say a fat phobic environment, right? An environment in which we as a culture fully embrace and believe that thin is good and fat is bad, right? Very, very simple idea, right? Fat phobia is any number of beliefs, attitudes, or ideas that rest on the assumption that thin is good and fat is bad. Very simple, right? And But I think that people don't actually think about fat phobia as a force that's really affecting their life, even though clearly it is affecting all of our lives on a regular basis, right? I mean, fat phobia, as I said in my blog post today, is being proliferated around us all the time. It affects so many areas of our lives, individually, collectively, emotionally, physically, right? Whether you identify as having, quote, food issues or not, it is unreasonable to believe that anyone, you know, man, woman, child, you know, uh, all spectrums of genders, um, could escape this cultural force unscathed, as I say in the blog, um, right? Like it, in our cultural social climate, that's just sort of something we're all dealing with. It's like the air we're breathing, unfortunately, right, is really heavily impacted by, by this particular form of bias, just like the air we're breathing is also really heavily impacted thing, by things like racial bias and gender bias, right? Weight bias is another very, very specific force that really, really permeates our culture in ways that are, you know, sometimes obvious to people in quotes, right? Like, you know, blatant fat shaming or, you know, criticizing, criticizing someone's body directly or criticizing someone's food. But it's also permeating our culture in a lot of really non-obvious ways or ways that people don't even think about, right? Um, especially, you know, people who have, you know, thin privilege, right? Like thinner people don't even necessarily think about, you know, the fact that, you know, fat people can barely go to the doctors without getting a lecture about their size as if they hadn't heard it before, right? Like all of these things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so fat phobia is, it's, you know, it is a, it's a, it's a social justice idea, right? Concept. Um, it's a form of oppression, right? And, you know, me and activists who are working in the weight bias space really want to shed light on this as a form of oppression because, you know, so many people, for many, many people, they don't even necessarily recognize this as like a real, you know, cultural bias um, and a form of oppression that is deeply, deeply, deeply impacting pretty much everyone, you know, in the Western modern world. Um, so yeah, and the implications of that, you know, are pretty vast, you know, and, you know, all the way from the casual dieter to the woman who just looks in the mirror and doesn't like what she sees. I mean, the impacts of fat phobia and diet culture, which is sort of, you know, slightly different version of that are just huge, right? Yeah. I mean, eating disorders largely wouldn't exist. I mean, to some extent, right, there's an argument to be made that a lot of these, uh, the specific way that, you know, pathology manifests wouldn't exist if this cultural condition, you know, this cultural sort of situation weren't um, uh, foundational to right. the situation. Yeah. So what you've often said is that, you know, weight issues and wanting to be 
thin doesn't exist in a vacuum. We want to be thin because of what thin means, which is something that, right. that you taught me. So that's essentially eternal, internalized fat phobia. Yeah, exactly. And just to like make my point even clearer, yeah. you know, there are cultures in which fatness is the beauty standard um, in specific parts of North Africa, for instance, and West Africa, I believe, you know, there are specific cultures that even exist today where fatness is the beauty ideal and women have rampant, you know, eating disorders to try to become fat, right? They literally are, you know, women are sent away to camps to fatten them up for marriage. Women so are given- yeah, women are given very dangerous medicines to try to help them put on weight, medicines that are, you know, typically given to livestock to help it fatten up livestock. Women are taking these medications so they can fatten themselves up um, for, you know, the male gaze. In these countries, you know, men, you know, who are interviewed often say, there was an article about this, I think it was in 2011, and I want to say Marie Claire, but I could be wrong about that. Um, but they interviewed even the men in these countries and the men used very similar normalized language that men used around thinness today around fatness they'd be like I don't know why I'm just you know more attracted to fat women you know like stuff like that like they just be like you know like I can't help who I'm attracted to I'm just attracted to like fat women you know like yeah. so interesting right you know it's very similar um language that that you know oftentimes I think uh, is used around uh, like sort of romance and dating and, and our culture around thinness. And, you know, you really start to realize how much of your brain is just influenced by, you know, whatever cultural situation that you're in. Yeah, that's so interesting. I actually hadn't heard that about something that's a beauty standard that, you know, loves fatness. I haven't seen, I haven't, I hadn't heard that, but it was so interesting. I remember when you explained it to me for the first time about how beauty standards have existed for years, but it's only in the last 100 years or so that it's come to include thinness. And I think the way that you explain this, and hopefully you can articulate this better than I'm going to try to, but how whatever is culturally difficult to attain is what people go after and what costs money to attain. And right now in our Western culture, that's thinness. And you can kind of see that with the diet industry and how much money and resources go into and time goes into people trying to make themselves thin. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah. So, I mean, it basically just goes into the sort of deeper question, like, why are we fat phobic as a culture, right? Like, how did this come about? If it's yeah. not biological, which it's clearly not, and there's obviously tons of evidence to, to sort of support that, you know, if this isn't a biological sort of imperative to desire thinness, right, um, as some people would have you believe, which is complete bullshit, if this isn't biological, like, what is this? How did this come about? Like, why does this, why, why is this beauty standard exist, right? And it becomes very, very clear, very, very quickly when you look at the history that there is absolutely a class and even potentially like a racialized component to beauty standards, right? So let's just talk about class for a second. I'll start with class, right? Um, what is beautiful is what rich people do for the most part, right? Like what is considered beautiful is what is almost always something that is expensive to attain that denotes status. And to some extent, you could make the argument, right, that, that really all thinness is is a status symbol. 
right? And I think there are a lot of people who claim to want to be thin for things other than just beauty in a vacuum, the way they see it. For a lot of people, thinness literally means straight up status, right? It's like, I want to be thin because I want to have power in my community. I want to have power in my social group. I want to have power over potential partners, right? It's very much about power and status, right? And so, yeah, it makes sense, right? When you look back at history, you'll see very clearly, you know, the bodies that are always considered the highest status are always going to be the ones that are most difficult to attain in a specific economic climate. So if you're living in a society where there's, you know, not a lot of food, right, which has been historically, that's the, the you know, the longest running uh, scenario, right? I mean, it's only very recently that we've had sort of food surplus and industrialized agriculture. It's only very, very recently that fatness has been cheaper to attain in some, you know, you could argue than thinness. Um, so yeah, historically fatness has been, uh, a sort of a representation of wealth. You're basically wearing your wealth on your sleeve. You're wearing the fact that you don't have to do manual labor. You're wearing the fact that you can afford all the food that you need and want. And then at some point with, you know, sort of, you know, various points of history that I won't bore you too much with, but certainly with industrial agriculture coming along, um, this sort of shifts, right? And it actually becomes cheaper to, uh, to, to, I mean, it actually becomes cheaper to eat foods that are calorie dense, right? So thinking about like fast food, for instance, being cheaper than going to whole foods, Right. right? And so now all of a sudden the situation flips. Right. What is what holds status changes as the sort of financial and economic climate changes. So that's so fascinating. And did you want to touch on how race comes into play in this issue? Yeah, and this is like a little bit less. Um, I don't like I there are I don't haven't read as much about race. However, it is very very clear, and I think that it's worth pointing out that race seems to be uh, like a factor into some capacity. So, for instance, white features are typically racialized, and when you think about what bodies we glamorize, they tend to be glamorized that we tend to glamorize body shapes and sizes that reflect white bodies um, and the look of white bodies. And this doesn't show up just in body size. This shows up in, you know, features, right? Like facial features, skin tone, all sorts of stuff. But it's just another thing that might may contribute to, for instance, like, you know, the Kate Moss look, right? Like mm-hmm. this is a very white bodied look, mm-hmm. you know, relative to uh, when you think about uh, sort of bodies of the global south, uh, darker skin bodies, et cetera. I'm so glad we're talking about this, and I'm so glad we're making this intersectional and talking about this from this angle, and something that really helped me in my recovery, and I was going to say this at the end, but I'll just say it now, I want to like publicly thank you so much for, and I tell this all the time to people and, and blame this on you, that you really opened my eyes to all of these things that I hadn't seen, and why would I? Because diet culture is so pervasive and all of these things are like you said like toxic in our air it's hard to know these things unless you have someone like you that can really and not that you're the only one doing this work but you're the one that was my window into it and I'm so grateful for that and anyway I one thing in particular that you taught me that really really helped me in my healing and I think we've talked about this before because I've interviewed you like 10,000 million times but I will continue to interview you 10,000 million more. <laughs> but one thing in particular was about 
healing this and getting angry from a feminist perspective and looking at this from a feminist perspective and really questioning these things, just like you're explaining right now, of why is it that from the time I was eight years old shopping for First Communion dresses, I felt like I wanted to be thinner than my friends or at my friend size? Why is it that, you know, the only fat character I saw on TV was Ursula, you know, who was evil, right? Like, why are these things so pervasive? And you're, you, you know, kind of blowing the top all off of these things for me and being my gateway into all of this is, is really great. So can you talk about why looking at this from a feminist issue and from a feminist perspective and getting angry is so helpful to your own personal healing? Yeah. And I will just expand, you know, beyond feminism or at least into like intersectional feminism or just social justice, right? Like I typically use the language, like just from a social justice perspective in general, mm-hmm. um, you know, this stuff is, is this really is a form of oppression. And most people like you were alluded to earlier, most people don't recognize it as such because it's so heavily normalized, right? Yeah. Most people have never heard the term fat phobia. Most people have really never thought all that hard about the ter- about things like quote unquote weight bias, right? We kind of know, I mean, I'll just speak for my own personal, personal life. Like I remember studying gender stuff when I was in college. And by the way, I was a sociology major, you know, studied race, gender issues, sexuality issues on a regular, regular, regular basis. Weight hardly came up. It only really came up sort of in these like very like white feministic context of like, isn't it fucked up that we all have this pressure to be thin, but there wasn't a ton of conversation about weight bias or sort of like a real true form of oppression that actually affects pretty much all people. Um, it was very much, uh, sort of this, there was, it was, it was seemed to be like a very light conversation. Um, sort of like something I personally thought of in my head as like, Oh yeah, it's so screwed up that like, I have to be thin to fit in. And like, I shouldn't like have all this pressure, but I didn't really get the gravity of what was going on and how fucked up it actually really is until I started kind of like listening to lived experiences of fat people, for instance, and listening to, you know, understanding fat activism as like its own form of social justice, um, just like on its own, like before we even have a conversation about intersectionality. Um, And so, yeah, there were just, you know, it didn't, I think that it was very recent in history, at least in my life. I mean, I went to like, you know, pretty good school again, sociology major, all the things. And this, this term never even came up, fat studies, fat phobia, weight bias, right? It was always sort of like this sort of like, you know, thing sort of happening on the side of like primarily white feminist thought where you're like, oh, beauty standards, right? Um, but you, we didn't get, we didn't really have like a really, we didn't have a really, and I never heard a really, really strong framework around this until way later when the fat activist movement really got mobile on the internet, right? So the, the fat activist movement has existed for many, many years, really since like definitely the seventies and possibly even into the sixties. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, but it, but, but it was very, very small. It was so, so small. It was like very, you know, very suppressed, Um, it was hard to find, like really not until I would say in the nineties, people were started to talk about it a little bit more. That was when the book health at every size came out. That was when, you know, certain things started to change, but nothing blew the top off of fat activism 
until the internet came along, really. Like that was when I think there was like a real tipping point and a real turning point where like somebody like me, like if you have access, if you want this information and you have access to the internet, you can find it. That was not even the case for me as a pretty privileged, well-educated person in college, let's say 10 years ago. Um, so yeah, so like this is a really, really exciting time. And again, there's so much advancement in this conversation, right? There's so much more theory. There's such, there's a much deeper understanding of how this bias works, how it affects people, how it affects people, you know, across the size, race, gender spectrums, right? Like we're having a much more intimate conversation around this now than we were certainly five or 10 years ago. But I could even make the argument, it's like, like the conversations we're having today are different than the conversations we were having three years ago, Yeah, you know? So, um, yeah, like this is, it is exciting to see this happening, but yeah, I, I'll just, you know, kind of wrap up by saying, I think most people, you know, fat phobia is so normalized in our society to this day. Still, most people have never heard of this concept yeah. and, and most people to, for the most part, they don't think of fat phobia as what's making them miserable. They just think there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Right. There's something wrong with my body. I can't make my food correct. What the hell is wrong with me? That is most people's lived experience is that there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with my body. I can't get my food under control. Why can't I stick to my diet? Why do I feel so crazy around food? That's most people's lived experience. They don't necessarily recognize or like have the language. I certainly didn't recognize or have the language to understand that what I was actually experiencing was cultural bias directed towards myself and cultural bias directed towards me by others. Yeah. And um, yeah, that was exactly where I was and enter your work. Well, a bunch Mm -hmm. of other things like hitting lots of bottoms, but then enter your work. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of where this is kind of a good place to my, you know, my other question around fat phobia was how to resist it. But I think this kind of, I'm jumping around here a little bit, But I want to kind of go back to where I was when I found your work because I think that's where a lot of people are with these questions that we had submitted. And I guess I haven't mentioned this yet, but I mentioned that you were coming on the show and back on the show. And I have about a million questions that were submitted, which are amazing. But I think, you know, when we talk about resistance to it, I I want you to speak on that freely in a second. But I think and this is something I've, I've gotten directly from you, but I think the biggest way that I've been able to be part of the resistance and is work on this in myself. And mm-hmm. I think that's kind of been the first step. And then, you know, helping other people and supporting other people is, is, can be challenging. And this, Emily writes uh, this really well. She says, you know, what are their thoughts on the best way to support a friend with body image issues? And she goes on, but she's really asking, you know, she's trying to send her podcast, but trying to not be too preachy. And, you know, where is that line and doing the work on yourself and then being able to to share it? Yeah. So, okay. So just to like sort of back up for a second. So Mm -hmm. if you sort of are, what we're doing is we're kind of expanding this concept of fat phobia and sort of taking a look at what, you know, disordered eating or like feeling crazy around food or, you know, quote food issues or whatever. We're taking a look at like, what would it mean if we looked at body image issues in general and all of these issues that we experience as foods as basically, um, 
expressions of fat phobia or ways that fat phobia affects us, either because we're fearing judgment of other people or interacting with, you know, the social world around us that is very fat phobic or, you know, again, internalizing these messages within ourselves and believing these messages and fully buying into these messages, right? Like fully buying into, yes, fat is bad and thin is good and I am bad if I don't fit this cultural standard. Right. So if we sort of assume that that's sort of what's going on when people are struggling with food um, or to and again, there's other issues, of course, but we're looking at this for the social justice lens. So that's what I'm going to work with Um, this question of, okay, so how do I support somebody who is struggling with food? How do I support someone who is effectively like a victim of a lot of internalized fat phobia? Meaning like they are really, really struggling with these fat phobic narratives in their own head and they that may be affecting their food, that might be affecting all sorts of stuff, right? Yeah. And creating I lots mean, of sort of toxicity. Is, yeah, this is a question that I have all right. the time because I see it everywhere with people. Right, exactly, exactly. So how do we support people who are trying to you know, recover, trying to resist, or possibly in this particular instance, it sounds like, you know, we don't really know if, I think there's something to even ask the question, you know, is this person even necessarily trying to recover yeah, or resist? probably not. Are, right. I mean, I think that there are a lot of people who, you know, for whatever reason are, are not ready to go there, right? Are not ready to look at the work, are not ready to, you know, do that work. Um, and, you know, for various psychological issues, and this is where we stop talking, you know, I, I won't even sort of get into all of that, but for various issues just might not be willing, right? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's their body, it's their life, right? You can't actually force someone into recovery. And in a lot of instances, right, trying to force somebody into recovery can backfire really quickly because what you're doing is you're actually basically you could easily be creating self-consciousness around the issue, right? Like by sending somebody bunches of podcasts that they may or may not be comfortable with or know about, right? Like in some instances that might very much backfire in the sense that, you know, people are thinking, you know, people could easily think like, well, you know, why is she sending this to me? Like, does she think I have a problem? Like, you know, it can easily create self-consciousness. And so I think that there, you know, it's something to be really conscious, you know, sort of first question to ask is like, is this a person who wants your direct support or not? Um, and just sort of be respectful of where people are, right? And if they're not in a position where they want to receive things like conversations or, you know, articles or like direct, quote, help, right? Um, then there's really nothing you can do about that. And trying could, again, easily backfire, right? Like it could create resentment, self-consciousness, all of these other things, right? You know, the the person, you know, I think trying to help directly somebody who doesn't want to be helped is not always the best way to go. And that's where you kind of have to do work within yourself and sort of really allow people to be themselves wherever they're at. Um, irrespective of your opinions about it. And that can be really, really challenging and really, really hard when you love someone, when you care about someone and you don't want to see them hurt themselves. Um, But it's also, this comes, you know, this is sort of where we get into like, okay, you know, like, you know, serenity to accept the things I can't change, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So that's sort of one thing that I'll just say for the record. Um, I also think, you know, for those people, I will say for everyone on the planet, no matter how willing or unwilling they may be, there is one thing that you can always do to quote help at any phase of anyone's recovery. And that is model recovery yourself 
and don't participate in fat phobia yourself. Work on yourself, right? I mean, that is the number one most important thing you yeah. can do. The number one most important thing you can do is model what recovery looks like, is model what body positivity looks like, is model what size acceptance looks like, right? That is how people learn, right? Like this culture is gonna be changed one person at a time, starting with you. So if you put energy into doing one thing, let it be that. Right. Yeah. And beyond beyond that, the rest is kind of like activism gravy, in my opinion, mm -hmm. like at its core foundation, the number one most important thing to do is make sure that you're continuously and an ongoing basis working on yourself, which doesn't just mean like, oh, I don't really feel like I have food issues anymore. I'm going to stop working on myself. Right. Trust me. There is so much more to learn about this. Go read about your own fat phobia. Continue to challenge your own fat phobic ideals. If anyone listening thinks that they just don't have fat phobic ideas, you're full of shit. That just like gives me like, you know, a little hint in my mind that you have more work to do, right? Like you need to go more, read more stuff, right? Because yeah. fat phobia, just like gendered bias, racial bias, right? These are onions that we peel for the rest of our life, right? We're constantly being influenced by it all the time. It's practically the air we breathe, right? And the responsible activist, I think, is constantly has to look at their own biases over and over and over and over again. And that work never ends, right? Like the more you can understand systems of oppression, whether they be fat phobia, racism, gender, right? the more you are helping to create a just world. And I think that that's, you know, really work that is um, sort of, I don't want to say undervalued, but I think that there are a lot of people who, you know, they, they're just like, oh yeah, I'm done with my recovery. And now I just want to like make sure that my friend gets into this program that I think is good mm -hmm. <laughs> or whatever, you know? Yeah. And we need to, and we need to, A, you know, not try to control people that we don't have control over and be, you know, really be continuously working on ourselves and continuously educating ourselves and going deeper and deeper and deeper yeah. into our, our own resistance, so to speak. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'll, and I'll kind of to go on that and I will say something that I, I'm pretty sure you helped me with along the way and helped me get honest with I had this exact same question. I still have this question. It's still something that, you know, I see all the time, of course, of, you know, looking at someone and, and really with compassion of like, oh, I so know what they're doing because I so used to do that and it can mm -hmm. make me sad. But I used to look at it and it would really get under my skin and it gets under my skin less now. It, it does because it makes me sad and it makes me upset about culture and fat phobia and blah, blah, blah. But it's... But before, it would get under my skin in a triggering way because I yeah. had more to look at of myself. And it was more under my skin from a perspective of, oh, man, right. I used to have that control or I used to, like, be able to do that. Or I almost, in this, like, sick, twisted way, almost admired it and because right. I was still healing something. And so right. I, right. I just wanted to say that. And I kind of want to go back to the start because I know there are a lot of people who have listened to this podcast for a while and I've heard your other episodes but there's a lot of new people too and I really want to get granular on you know where I was when I first reached out to you because I know there's people listening who are probably in that position and um you know and it's a really good refresher for me to be honest I think it's always good to to hear this information from you mm -hmm. directly so you know, for someone who, and there were a million questions, I'm kind of summarizing like a couple questions that were asked, 
But I really want to talk about that willingness, that willingness to start to do the body image work. Um, Mm. But before that even, let's just start with, you know, being a product of society and wanting to be thinner. Maybe you've gained some weight. Maybe you um, have had an eating disorder and have, you know, maybe restored your weight. And that is jarring. I know that was kind of where I found you was, Mm -hmm. you know, my weight was restored, but I was crazy around food. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think if you can kind of just start of like, where do you start as a coach, as a teacher to someone who comes to you? I feel crazy around food and I hate my body. (laughs) Oh my. Um, that's a really, really big question. So I think honestly, you're not going to like the answer to this, Katie, but it is, it is somewhat individualized in the sense of, you know, I mean, you know, me, my program is sort of broken up into like sort of six core, like modules, right, so to speak, where we first sort of talk about unpeeling physical restrictions, right? So unpeeling like basic, basic, basic dieting tendencies through a practice of intuitive eating. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. So, you know, like for this, for the person who's just like, I mean, because again, it depends on where someone's at, right? I mean, I think that this question of, and so, you know, I sort of go through like sort of these like six core pillars, like depending on where you're at, you're going to need one or all of these when you come to me. Um, But yeah, sort of, I would say sort of one of the sort of recovery pillars, a place where a lot of people I think do end up starting, whether it's, you know, my program or anywhere else, a lot of people start with just the basics of, you know, what does it mean to not be dieting on a physical plane, right? The emotional plane of what it means to be not dieting is like a whole other conversation, right? Like that's a huge conversation, but just, just let's keep it simple, right? If I'm talking to somebody who is like just getting started, like full on feeling crazy around food, restricting like crazy, you know, hasn't not tried to control their food for the purpose of weight loss in God knows how many years, right? And they just, it literally, like people ask me all the time, they're like, I don't even understand what it means to not diet or to not restrict my food or to not be trying to control my food. Like, what does that even look like? We'll typically start with conversations around intuitive eating because as challenging as intuitive eating can be in many ways, it's sort of the most, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a really, yeah, exactly. It's like a solid entry point. It's like a sort of intellectual, like, Hey, read this book. Like, let's talk about hunger signals. Let's talk about biological needs around food. Let's talk about why denying physical hunger is dangerous for you, how it's creating all of these various different psychological and biological harms for your body, right? Like how this is impacting your life. We all, and you've heard me say this a million times, it's like, we all as babies knew what to eat and how much of it to eat, right? We just ate, right? It's a biological instinct that people are born with that they lose um, through the process of dieting, right? Dieting sort of teaches us to ignore like a basic biological process that actually works pretty well on its own. So we have to kind of like relearn this biological birthright of ours called, you know, oh, eating when I'm hungry. Cool. Like, oh, like that's what fullness feels like. Oh, that's interesting. That's what this type of food feels like, oh, you know, like kind of getting back in touch with, oh, my body is an actual living, breathing animal that feels things that needs food to live, right? And kind of getting back in touch with that. So that's a really, really great entry point. 
obviously beyond that, it doesn't matter if you're attempting intuitive eating or whether you're attempting like paleo or vegan or this or that or whatever the hell that you're attempting, right? Attempting to, you know, if whatever it is that you're attempting, right? Mm -hmm. If you're attempting it because you are trying to control your size because you think that like your body as it naturally would exist isn't quote good enough, right? You're going to have problems physically, emotionally, right? Like that is the root of all dysfunction with food in my opinion, right? I had a mentor once say eating disorders at its core, they express themselves in all sorts of different ways, but at its core, what they are is addictions to the pursuit of thinness, Mm -hmm. right? That's it. Mental addictions to the pursuit of thinness it has all sorts of different symptoms, right? For some people, binge eating is going to be a major symptom. I think for most people, binge eating is a major symptom. But even if it's not, even if you're full on falling on the restrictive eating disorder spectrum, right, you are going to experience a lot of very negative physical and psychological symptoms as a result of this particular compulsion, right? This compulsion towards an addiction to try to control weight, addiction to trying to become thinner and make your body do what you think it should do rather than what it intuitively wants to do. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of like, I mean, you asked me such a big question. I'm kind of like yeah. going through the well, feeling I, that. I want to, I'm trying to like hit, put quarters in the Isabel jukebox and have you hit some <laughs> of the things that were most um, eye-opening for me. And while we're on this vein of intuitive eating, you have something called the hunger and fullness diet, which you say as a big joke And that was something when I first started your program and first started intuitively eating for the first time in my life. And I think it's actually good that I pepper in my experience with working with you into this um, because, you know, I was recovering from, in quotes, from my eating disorder, but still very much a product of society and still really in the diet mentality without even realizing it fully or maybe I did so I start intuitively eating I start listening to the hunger and full the cues of my body trying to do that right but that's the key word trying and I you know having these control tendencies and I think it's good to continue to tell the story to kind of use me as a lens so you can guide through these um core points so so anyway so I'm going through bopping along using you know the components of intuitive eating but then right. I found myself like oh I gotta am I hungry right now I'm not sure I'm gonna sit on my hands and I'm going to do something else because I'm not sure if I'm hungry and then in two hours then okay my stomach's probably okay now I can eat like just getting so right. like I used to with diets with this new intuitive way of eating which is the right. complete opposite so right. then you right. enter you who told me about the hunger and fullness diet and it was so right. transformative so can you define it Right. So basically this experience, I think most people who just are in, you know, introduced to intuitive eating being like, oh, you have food issues. Here's intuitive eating or who here's mindful eating. It's going to solve all your problems. It's going to solve all your problems. Right. Intuitive eating, mindful eating, just do this and then you'll be fine. All your food issues will go away. Like it's sort of, I think people think that initially. Easy button. Right. 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 (laughs) Like, yeah, exactly. It's like, and, and that was how I felt when I first, um, you know, learned about intuitive eating. I mean, I remember the first time I ever read a Janine Roth book. I remember the first time I read the actual, the intuitive eating book. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this is the answer. This is my answer to all of my yo-yo dieting, all of my diet and cycling, all of my fucking craziness around food all the time. All of my, I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm just going to eat when I'm hungry and stop when I'm full. And then I won't be depriving myself and I'll be thin. Right. Like that was sort of what I thought I was getting myself into initially with intuitive eating. Have your cake and Um, eat it too. 
Right, right, exactly. <laughs> like it seemed like, oh, of course. Like even I'm hungry and stuff when I'm full and that's the answer, right? And so this is, ha big joke, right? That was not the answer. <laughs> I mean, it was, again, listening to your body is important, but that's, it's like 3%. It's, yeah. it, I mean, it's like, it's like a very, it like, it's like a baby step into what is a much bigger pie of what the non-diet approach actually is, right? Oh, so, this is so good. This is like right. such an important, like so many people just stop there and like, oh, I'm just happy that right. this is happening. Right, and they don't end up like recovering fully because they're not actually dealing with all of these very, you know, sort of much, much bigger core emotional issues that are driving this diet mentality, right? So mm-hmm. we start to basically, what ends up happening with intuitive eating is a lot of people try to fix, they try to stop dieting in quotes, which to them means I'm not going to be on Atkins anymore. I'm not going to count calories anymore. I'm not going to do Weight Watchers anymore. I'm going to eat intuitively. I'm going to eat when I'm hungry and stop when I'm full, right? So it just becomes a sort of like new thing that they're doing. And again, listening to your body is super, super important, right? It's very important that you eat when you're hungry, right? Like denying your hungry is incredibly dangerous. It creates all sorts of biological and psychological problems that, you know, contribute to eating disorders in and of themselves and contribute to food issues and all sorts of other, you know, physiological problems in and of themselves. Super important. I don't want to diminish the importance of eating when you're hungry um, and, and, the, and the relevance and the uh, sort of critical uh, just, you know, movement of intuitive eating itself. That being said, if you're not addressing diet mentality, which is not just about whether you're on Weight Watchers, it's not just about whether or not you're doing Atkins or Paleo or counting calories or whatever, right? If you're still suffering from diet mentality, meaning like you think there's a right way to eat and a wrong way to eat. You think that there's a way of eating that's going to keep you safe and a way of eating that isn't safe, that you have to not do, that will hurt you, that is scary, that will, you know, ruin your life, right? If you think that there is effectively, if you are trying to control your body size by trying to control right by like okay I'm gonna try and eat when I'm hungry and stop when I full but I'm I'm not gonna eat when I'm not hungry because that'll make me fat right like if these are the kinds of thoughts that you're experiencing when you're approaching intuitive eating you're gonna find yourself experiencing a lot of the same physiological biological reactions that you had to even traditional typical diets right because you're actually doing the exact same thing you're just applying it to hunger and fullness so to speak rather than, you know, counting calories or whatever. I always say like, I'd rather you be on the hunger and fullness diet than a calorie counting diet, right? Like I'd rather you at least be uncovering the uh, physical deprivation piece um, than not, of course. Um, But it's really like, that is not, it doesn't heal any of the emotional pain, right? Like it doesn't actually heal any of the emotional dysfunction. And for a lot of people, I mean, when I was attempting the hunger and fullness diet, I was binge eating all the time, right? Or I was, yeah. I was struggling, right? I was suffering all the time. Like I was constantly judging my food. I was constantly, like you said, asking myself, wait, oh my gosh, but I'm not hungry, but I'm eating that emotionally, but emotional eating is wrong and bad. And emotional eating is like the worst thing I could do. Oh my gosh, if I eat emotionally too much, I'm going to, you know, gain all this weight and no one's going to love me. And you know, all hell is going to break loose, right? Like I was still operating the same way around these new boundaries that I had come up for myself, you know, that had come to me around these new boundaries that I called hunger and fullness. I was still operating that same way around those boundaries as I was other dieting, other sort of, you know, dieting options. So, yeah. Yeah. So the next, 
Yeah, the next Isabel um, note that I really want to hit that really, really helped me from there was what you just sort of touched on about emotional eating being the worst thing in the world. And that's really, really what I thought from um, a lot of those previous books that you mentioned and a lot of the other work on there out there with intuitive eating that I had read until I found your work. I didn't realize that emotional eating is a coping mechanism and it is one coping mechanism. It is not the worst. See, I I can like kind of go into it because I know um, your work so well because like I said, I'm, I am a student. So you have a great blog post, I believe about this, but can you talk about emotional and physical allowance and emotional eating, you know, just being a coping mechanism and how it's, there are worse ones and there are, you know, better ones and they're not, they're not bad. Do you say it better? Right. (laughs) I'm trying to do you. The easiest way to figure out if you're not sure whether or not you're actually pursuing, you know, the non-diet approach or if you're actually just sort of accidentally getting trapped in what I like to call the hunger and fullness diet, The way you know if you're getting accidentally trapped on the hunger and fullness diet rather than like actually healing your diet mentality is that you feel very guilty and awful and you're trying to avoid eating emotionally, right? Like eating outside of the context of hunger, eating for non-hunger related reasons like totally freaks you out and you're like, oh my God, no, that's bad. That's wrong. I shouldn't eat emotionally. Eating emotionally is, is is, is not okay. Right. So there's all that. I think this is the biggest trap that people fall into with intuitive eating. And there are some coaches, unfortunately, certain, thankfully not Evelyn Triboli or Elise Reich, who are awesome. But there are a lot of coaches out there who are teaching this shit. And I just get so angry when people teach intuitive eating and are like, OK, eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full. And if you want to eat when you're not hungry, go take a warm bath instead. Sit on you your know, hands, like, if, go on a walk. Right. Call right. Your yeah. <laughs> right. Do anything that you can do to not eat emotionally because emotional eating is bad. Right. Yeah. And like that was the message that I, you know, I dealt with that for a really, really long time. I heavily identified as an emotional eater. I mean, for years and years, I was in all sorts of programs for emotional eating. I thought that was my problem for a really long time. You know, even post being in rehab for binge eating and all sorts of stuff, you know, I got a lot of mixed messages in various forms of my treatment. And I really thought emotional eating was like the root of my, of all of my problems. Like my problem was that I was an emotional eater and I was very, um, you know, that was really how I identified myself. I really, really had a a hang up that, you know, I needed to control my emotional eating and I really needed to learn how to figure out what to do about my emotional eating. Otherwise, you know, again, all hell was going to break loose. No one was going to love me. You know, I was, you know, now I think the other thing that happened, unfortunately, when I started learning about emotional eating was that, you know, I used to think prior to hearing the term emotional eating, I used to just think, oh my gosh, I can't stick to my diet. But now it's like, oh my gosh, I have this pathology. Like I'm an emotional eater. Oh, I'm a quote food addict, which I'm sure we'll talk about it in a second. Right? Like these were sort of the the ideas. I sort of I really identified with this concept, right? Like I was like in my mind at the time, it made so much sense. I was like, oh, the reason that I can't quote get my food under control isn't because we're not, you know, is because I'm an emotional eater, right? Is because I can't not eat you know, I can't stop eating my feelings, right? And this became the new thing to avoid, right? Like some people cut out carbs. I was trying to cut out emotional eating, Mm -hmm. right? And that became the new diet that I was on. And I was on the don't eat emotionally diet. Sometimes I call the hunger and fullness diet the don't eat emotionally diet. I was on the don't eat emotionally diet for years. And what ended up happening is that every time I 
would fail at the di- at the don't eat emotionally diet, right? Like every time I would fall off the wagon of the don't eat emotionally diet, I'd binge my face off, yeah. right? So like ju- or I would feel guilty, I'd feel shameful, I'd feel awful. But for me as a binge eater, I would binge my fucking face off. And so, be- which we can talk about more in a second also, but I-, I think that people sort of relate to this idea of like, you know, I'm sitting on my hands, you know, I'm trying to eat intuitively, I wanna eat something, but I'm not hungry, so I think I shouldn't eat it. And I'm like, okay, sit on my hands, trying not to eat, you're not hungry, Isabel, you're not hungry, Isabel, right? And I kept trying to talk myself out of eating the thing that I wanted to eat because, quote unquote, I wasn't hungry for it or, quote unquote, it was emotional and therefore bad and I couldn't do it, right? And so what ended up happening was this became the new, like, you know, toy in the toy store that I couldn't touch. And so, of course, when I finally caved, when I finally broke and ate the thing that I wanted to eat for comfort, which wouldn't have been that big of a deal if I just didn't care about it in the first place, became this huge deal, became this, oh, I'm off the wagon, I'm eating emotionally, now I want the whole, you know, I want the whole pint plus all the chip, plus all of the Gotta things in my refrigerator. Gotta get it in now. Right, right. Diet like, I'm starts like, tomorrow. Exactly, I've fallen off the wagon, now I'm in full-on binge eating mode. I mean, I think a lot of people think, which sort of brings me to like a core point that I haven't talked about on a blog in a while, but it's so important. People think binge eating People confuse binge eating and emotional eating all the time. They think it's the same thing. A lot of people think binge eating is just eating emotionally a lot, right? And this is really, really confusing for people because then what ends up happening is people think that these wild, really, really aggressive binge eating, very like self-hating episodes that like last for days where they're like sick in their bed. And again, this isn't gonna be everyone's experience, but for the hardcore binge eaters out there, you know what I'm talking about. And I experienced this, right? Like I was a low bottom binge eater, like calling in sick from work because I had binged so hard the night before I couldn't get out of bed. You know, like that was my story. I was a serious, hardcore, you know, again, like low bottom binge eater. And so what would end up happening, right, is people think that binges are caused by emotional eating, right? Because I think a lot of people who are, a lot of times what ends up happening is people, they villainize emotional eating. They're on the don't eat emotionally diet because a, a lot of, um, a lot of binge eating recovery programs out there, unfortunately, paint this picture that binge eating has to, is is the same as emotional eating. And so, what ends up happening is that people, you know, they have an, they're they're trying not to eat emotionally. They think emotional eating is wrong, and so when they want to eat emotionally, they're like kind of sitting on their hands, trying not to do it. Now they're in a sort of total deprivation state, just like they were in their previous dieting days, where they're like, I want to eat it, but I shouldn't eat it don't eat it, right? And then when they eventually cave, which is inevitable, right? Like at some point you're gonna eat emotionally, guys. Like there is no one who eats food just for fuel and nothing else. Like emotional eating is a part of life or even the most normal eater out there. Then they binge, right? Because they go into what I like to call and what you know really well, Katie, last supper mentality, right? I fell off the wagon, I suck, you know, diet, you know. Might as well is like a good phrase with that. Right, might as well just eat everything that isn't nailed down and then like tomorrow's day one. Tomorrow, I swear, I will go back to only eating when I'm hungry and stopping when I'm full. Tomorrow's day one again of like, again, the quote unquote, the hunger and fullness diet, right? And so, or the don't eat emotionally diet. I always think about (laughs) that scene of Sex in the City where um, Miranda's made like a chocolate cake and she's about to throw away the whole thing. But like, that's kind of what I always think about when I'm, thinking about a visual of what you're describing right now of like I'm gonna toss this so I gotta take as many bites as I can right now so I don't need any more of it 
Right, right. And so, you know, like the reality of the situation is like, you know, eating a cupcake when you're sad doesn't necessarily have to turn into one of these giant binges. But guess what? If you think eating a cupcake when you're sad is wrong, when you think eating a cupcake when you're sad is a sign of pathology, is like not okay, is something that's going to like, you know, effectively, quote unquote, make you fat and unlovable for the rest of your life, right? Which is a lot of people what they think, you know, first of all, emotional eating does not cause I could get into a whole conversation about whether or not emotional eating causes fatness and whether fatness causes unlovability. And I would say no to both. But this is how people think, right? This is how this is this is I'll just say for myself personally, right? In my deepest hour, my darkest hour, when I was struggling with these thoughts and I was struggling with diet mentality, I would just think, you know, oh, my gosh, if I eat, I'm not hungry. If I eat the cupcake, you know, I'm I'm off the wagon. And then, of course, that would be a self-fulfilling prophecy. I wasn't allowed to eat emotionally. So whenever I would eat emotionally, it would turn turn into a binge. It would turn into a giant, giant, incredibly, you know, sort of painful, over the top, very self-punishing last supper experience where I wasn't even tasting my food, right? It wasn't even pleasurable. It was just about hoarding food because I don't know when I'm going to get this again because tomorrow, please, by the grace of God, let me not eat this thing tomorrow or let me not eat this way tomorrow. Yeah. Right. And so this was this cycle that I was, I was in this cycle for years around, you know, again, the hunger and fullness diet, the don't eat emotionally diet. You know, I was, I was bouncing back and forth between a few different quote unquote yeah. recovery strategies um, yeah. around binge eating for a long time before I really realized, oh, emotional eating and binge eating are two different things, right? Like emotional eating is just, I'm sad, I want a cupcake. Binge eating is, I'm not supposed to have that, so I want it even more. Binge eating is, I fell off the wagon and I suck and diet starts tomorrow, so I might as well eat everything that I can possibly get my hands on right now, and then tomorrow, I swear to God, I'll never eat the thing again, right? So these are very different sort of psychological apparatus that are happening in our brains when we're going moving through these experiences, but people sort of like lump them up together as if they're one thing, which really I think is like the number one reason why people struggle with binge eating for so long is because they don't have proper education around how to separate emotional eating from binge eating and really make peace with the fact that emotional eating is going to happen. It's okay. You actually can get to the point where like, if you want a cupcake when you're sad, it's okay. It's no big deal. And it doesn't have to turn into, Oh my God, I fell off the wagon. I suck. Oh my God. Like diet starts tomorrow. Like yeah. I better go to this, you know, all these it's things. It's just a cupcake because right. you're enjoying just, it and you're right. not like, hungry and that's fine. <laughs> Right. Exactly. Like people used to like, it's like, it's like, it, I think people want to like shoot me in the face when they're, when I'm like, Oh, you know, when I was in, certainly when I was struggling, people would be like, why can't you just eat? And it's, you know, it's just a cupcake. Who cares? And I would like freak out when people would say to yeah. me, I'd be like, you don't understand. I'm an emotional eater. Right. Like yeah. I'm a food addict. You don't understand. Right? Blah, 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 blah. And now it's like, Oh yeah, I get it. Yeah. You were right. right all along. I just didn't believe that a cupcake was just a cupcake because I had so much diet mentality around it. I was so terrified of weight gain. I was so terrified of of eating too much, whatever that meant, or eating incorrectly, whatever that meant. I was so terrified of that that a cupcake couldn't just be a cupcake. Right. It was this like incredibly emotionally charged thing all the time. Yeah. And I didn't recognize that it wasn't the fact that I was, quote, just a food addict or just an emotional eater that made me feel that way about food. It was the fact that I was a fucking hardcore dieter that made me feel that way. It was because I was so afraid of eating wrong. And I was so afraid of, of quote, falling off the wagon. I was so afraid of weight gain that I couldn't 
actually just let be food what it was. And I think that that's, I know that you had asked, said that somebody who had asked a question, somebody in your Facebook group had asked a question about food addiction. And I think that this is, you know, now we're really starting to get into that conversation. It's like when we talk about food addiction, you know, what do we mean by food addiction? Like, have I experienced the feeling of, oh my gosh, once I start, I can't stop? Yeah, sure. I've experienced that. I hardcore identified with that for a really long time in my life. But what I don't believe anymore is that the cupcake causes these binge eating episodes. What now I believe is diet mentality is actually what causes these binge eating episodes. And that's a really, really critical distinction. Yeah. Whew. So much good stuff there. I want to get into kind of the next tenant of your work that really helped me, which is, I'll talk about kind of where I was within this because I think it's beneficial to hear, you know, two people's stories with this. And I had you as a guide and you had yourself as a guide. Um, Mm -hmm. But I didn't really have those big episodes of been those, my story was a little bit different with the more so on the restrictive side and Mm -hmm. um, less so with the binges. But I think after intuitive eating, the next kind of layer in the onion is really doing the body image work. And before we start Mm -hmm. talking about body image, I want to talk about, we talked, you mentioned it at the beginning, how surrender is such a big part of your work and willingness. And I know this is something that I heard you say when you told, when I heard you tell your story and how I ended up connecting with you for the first time, because I so resonated with this when you talked about body image and you talked about doing that work from the place where I was when I first found your work to when I actually started to work with you. I remember hearing you start talking about body image and being like, I don't care. I just want to be thin. I was so not wanting to hear it. And I remember you saying that about with your story that you were kind of the same way when you, you know, would look at positive body image role models. You were like, that's great, but I don't want, I don't want to look like that. I don't want, I want to be thin. You were really, really, this was so ingrained. And that's, that's really where I was too. So can you talk about, you know, cultivating that? I don't even know if this is a question that can be answered, but cultivating that willingness and then getting to the surrender with wanting to get to this this place yeah so I mean people talk about being quote-unquote ready to do the work right so for many many years I mean I had therapists again I was I was in clinical treatment by the age of 19 and I didn't really find recovery until my early 20s so you know like there was a you know there was a long period there where I was being told Ooh, body image, love yourself, blah, blah, blah. And it would just like went in one year, one out the other, right? Like it was totally just words. Yeah, that's what it was for me until you. Right. Yeah. (laughs) All right. And um, yeah. And so, you know, people talk a lot about readiness to do body image work, right? Like there comes a point where you become, quote, ready to do body image work, where it's like you actually start to see the value of body image work. Like you actually start to see it as something that's not just like airy fairy bullshit, but like something that actually is super, super important for you personally, right? Like I remember like a few different moments, but like having like a few moments where I was like, whoa, like if I don't do the body image work, I am fucked. Like I am actually fucked. What were those right? moments? And so, right. And so those moments were, and I think that I just kind of getting, getting there. Okay. Getting, okay. Okay. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> I mean, I'll skip ahead. Basically, I no, personally, 
I personally think that what really creates willingness, I mean, I'll start with the most obvious thing. I think there are a few different things that create willingness. One is understanding why this desire to be thin is ruining your life. Right. And not that I wouldn't even say the desire to be thin, but the sort of I'll say because I think the desire to be thin is more complex and we could talk about that within the context of body image and living body blah. But I'll just say lack of body image work, like unwillingness to do body image work, unwillingness to address fat phobia, right? Unwillingness to talk about this. If that work isn't done, you are trapped. You are stuck in diet mentality. I could make the argument that all diet mentality is is the belief that you need to be a certain size to be happy, right? And you need to be a certain size in order to maintain your self-worth and self-esteem, right? I could make the argument that that is what diet mentality is. There is no recovery from whatever pain you're experiencing around food without that. Whether your diet binge cycling like crazy and are just like, oh my gosh, you know, I mean, there, there was a point, like, so for me personally with diet binge cycling, it was like, I sort of realized that like, unless I could just stop dieting and sort of get comfortable with where my body naturally settled. I was just going to keep doing that painful cycle over and over again. That hell was never going to end. And for a lot of people, theoretically, you are here because you're in pain. Do you realize that that pain will not end? There is no answer to this problem without body image work. You have two choices. You can do the body image work or you continue to live in the misery that is food dictating your life. There is no middle ground. Yeah. Right. And I think that that, you know, it's sort of like a, it's like getting to a point. It's like a low. It's like getting to a point, a bottom point where you sort of start to recognize, holy shit, if I don't do this work earnestly and honestly, there's nowhere else to go. How can you speed that up? What are some ways to you can't speed the bottom? But I mean, I can say some things that kind of at the time for me that really helped me kind of spawn me into like, okay, I better do this body image work. We're realizing, you know, learning from Dr. Linda Bacon's work about health at every size, previous podcast guest, or learning about, um, you know, how set point, weight set point and how you're going to end up working your set point up. And in a kind of backwards twisted way that scared me enough to do the body image work. Yeah, and it is. I would say that like it is like a backwards. It's like a cheater's way into body image work, right? I I used to push that really, really hard. And I've actually kind of lightened up on pushing that because ultimately it is sort of like tricking people into do body image work through fat, through scaring them. Yeah, no, it's not great, but I'm just being honest. No, no, no. And I fully get it. I mean, like I'll say like, I think ultimately, and I'll just go back even further and go even more hardcore with it, even beyond the whole metabolic disruption conversation, which is relevant, right? Like dieting is the number one, realistically dieting is the number one predictor of weight gain. That is a fact, right? That is a scientific fact. Restriction dieting is the number one predictor of increased weight gain over time, right? So the way that dieting works typically is like you go down some, you gain, you know, it gain it back plus five or whatever. You know, you down some, gain it back plus another five, right? It's like the trend line is up, they down, but for most people, the trend line is up over time. Um, and certainly, like even in the case of restrictive eating disorders, I always say, okay, so do you want to literally be in hell doing this restrictive, restrictive eating disorder thing your whole life, knowing that, first of all, there's a really good chance you're going to crack and start binge eating. A lot of restrictive eating disorders crack eventually, right? And and just uncontrollably go the other side because biology wins. And thank fucking God, by the way, for that. Mm. Um, but also, like, 
if even if you never crack, that means like you just literally have to spend your entire life obsessed with food. You never actually get to enjoy your life. You just die being obsessed with food. Um, and like the longer you stay in that space, if you decide, hey, actually, I do want to be in recovery. Actually, I do don't want to live this way for the rest of my life. But yeah, the scientific facts are that dieting actually predicts weight gain over time. It fucks up your metabolism. Like it increases your set point weight over time, right? Like if you ever have, you know, like any desire to not have, you know, be struggling with restrictive eating disorder and want to actually be able to relax food or relax around food in the future at any point, the longer you wait, the more metabolic damage you're doing in the process. And of course, I think a lot of restrictive eating disorders, you know, they often crack and turn to binge eaters anyway, right? So it's just like there is this sort of risk, even if your ultimate goal were to be as thin as possible, I could make the argument that there is a long-term risk in continuing to diet, right? Like dieting again is the number one predictor of weight gain um, in the long term, right? Because it is a, it's a, it's a, it is, it's a fat sort of a fat phobic way of sort of scaring people into doing body image work, mm. is being like, hey, FYI, I just want to let you know that if you continue to diet, you could end up fatter than if you just cut your losses right now. <laughs> and certainly, certainly for, but that was compelling for me. I mean, certainly as a binge eating, and I know you said it was compelling for you too, yeah, like which I'm not yes. proud of, but I'm almost kind of like I'm glad we're talking about it right now because there might be people where we are that at least it gets them in the door. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you really want to talk about like fucked up, like motivations, I mean, I was really got turned on to doing body image work initially because I was working with a coach who was selling me the love yourself to lose weight diet, right? Yeah. The, if you loved yourself, you know, and if you treated yourself well and with compassion and were kind to yourself, you wouldn't eat as motion, eat emotionally as much, right? Like that was the mm -hmm. line that I was getting at that point. You wouldn't eat as emotionally as much and then you would lose weight, right? Or then you wouldn't, you know, gain weight or whatnot. So, you know, that I got into body image work also through this sort of like backdoor fucked up fat phobia angle, right? Yeah. Um, I would say ultimately my deepest levels of healing are when I really made peace with, you know what, like my body is what my body is, period, end of discussion. And I want to, um, I want to like, yeah highlight that and just like take a pause because I think I'm glad we're talking about this exact point because that to me is what differentiates you from everyone else I've ever found on the internet in this conversation where you know the slant really isn't about doing this so you you know you find your set point or you don't gain weight or whatever it's doing this purely from doing the body image work to do the body image work because it's important and for the sake of sanity around food, right? And like yeah. recovery, you know, like actually being able to have a life outside of food and being able to enjoy like not being consumed with like Googling paleo recipes all day yeah. long, as I, as I often say, you know, in my writing, um, you know, I very much wanted recovery. Like I really felt like just I was miserable like yes I had so many body image issues and it was super crazy but there was also a part of me that like legitimately also wanted freedom like actual recovery and freedom um and so like those were both things that were happening and at some point I realized that the freedom part is really going to come from doing the body image work I think people are really scared but you know I, I will say this I think people are really really scared that doing the body image work is um 
is going to like be a disaster. I think especially for, well, not just for binge eaters, I would say for restrictive eating disorders too. You know, I think people just think doing body image work is just going to be like all hell is going to break loose. You know, their body, they're going to, you know, gain however much weight is terrifying to them. And I think that, you know, the reality of the situation is when you actually heal your relationship with food, all that's going to happen is you're going to be whatever weight that you're actually meant to be at this point in time in your life. Um, and quite frankly, like if you can't make peace with that, like you're just going to like, by definition, you're going to be fighting it and struggling and like in the crazy round food indefinitely until you decide to go this route, right? Like until you decide to do the work, you know, and I think there comes a point, you know, I think sort of that willingness comes a point where you're like, okay, like I got to cut my losses. Like, there, like I said earlier, like there is really no other option here. It's right. Like there's no plan B where it's like, oh, I get to like control my body size and have complete freedom and sanity. Lots of people are selling that on the internet yeah. and none of them are substantiated by science. None of them actually have like any credibility whatsoever. It's all fucking bullshit. You know, like yeah. in reality. And I yeah. think like maybe some of those people, I just, this is a new thought I'm having right now of like People in thin, who happen to be in thin bodies, we don't know. Maybe they are also still restricting and selling that. But people oh, yeah. in, in thin bodies who just happen to be in thin bodies who are maybe truly yes. intuitively eating and truly, you know, living this way, but they think that if other people do, they will be that way. They will look yes. that way too. And so then people yes. are like, well, I, I want to look like her. So I'm going to do what she does. And then it doesn't have the same results for them. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I think the, first of all, I think the majority of health and wellness professionals out there, there are definitely exceptions. Like there are definitely like your Jillian Michaels and you're just like full on like extreme crazy people around food who just like, you know, are suppressing some massive weight gain. But for the most part, right. A lot of people who are selling like intuitive eating for weight loss are just naturally thin people who assume that all bodies are the same right. and that if you eat, you know, if you eat intuitively and make peace with your body, you're going to end up thin too. People who are naturally inclined towards thinness are going to end up thin, but people who aren't naturally inclined towards thinness are going to end up wherever the hell they're going to end up. Yeah. Right. And so like, for example, I'm like, you know, like that was like a big thing. I can remember when I very first started writing about this and blogging about this. I, I actually didn't have a really strong, solid understanding of weight set point theory. I didn't have a strong, solid understanding of health at every size. Those are things I learned more in like a year or two into blogging. But when I first started blogging, I had a business coach who I was working with who I talked to, you know, I was like, I want to be the next emotional eating guru. We, you know, that was like my whole thing. And I said to her, I was like, hey, I was like, you know what? I was like, you know, I still eat emotionally sometimes. Like, you know, my weight is actually pretty much the same as it was when I started doing this particular form of work. You know, like kind of I was doing at the time I was kind of doing the love yourself to lose weight diet kind of. I was like, you know, I feel so much better around food now that I'm just kind of like eating what I want and like kind of making peace with the way my body looks. Um, But FYI, I haven't lost weight. And, you know. Like I still eat emotionally sometimes and it just sort of is what it is. How do I sell that? Like, you know, why would anyone read this? And she was like, well, why would anyone read it? And I was like, well, because I'm fucking sane today. Like I have a life outside of food today and I can't say that about myself three or four years ago. So that's what I'm about. And that became the new trajectory of my business. She basically said, okay, then why don't you talk about that? 
Why don't you actually offer that to people? Hey, you know, I can't necessarily like wave a magic wand and make your body look a certain way that probably no one else can make you look either long term, but I can give you fucking sanity. So how about them apples? Yeah, because you can do whatever short term, and I've seen it and done it, but long term, sanity is the only thing that can be guaranteed and is guaranteed by your program, at least through this testimonial. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) okay I feel like we hit so many good Isabel points I want to talk a little bit more about your program because it's so meaningful to me but I want to do one more question that I think is really important this one comes from Stephanie and she asks how do you have a healthy relationship with food and your body and eat intuitively when you have food allergies and we can talk about this in terms of gluten in terms of ethical things. Um, Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, I'll just talk about my own personal experience because I feel like that's the easiest way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you reference gluten. So, like, I'm pretty gluten intolerant. A few years after I, um, like, I kind of knew this about myself, like, sort of, not really. I was, like, working with a holistic doctor who I trusted a lot and who's, you know, like, had my good faith. And, you know, we were working on some stuff. I was experiencing some symptoms. And she's like, you know, Isabel, like, you really might want to, like, try, like, letting go of gluten. And, you know, I kind of told her about my previous experience. I was like, you know, I gave up dieting three years ago. I'm recovering from an eating disorder, you know. And she's like, okay. She's like, I'm just putting it out there as, like, a thing that might help you with, like, XYZ specific physical health symptoms that you're dealing with and like you know a little bit also I had some like uh, family history of stuff that that she thought may be related to gluten intolerance or seemed like could possibly be related to gluten intolerance and it's interesting I haven't actually ever really told this full story so this is kind of fun cool Um, so yeah very exclusive yeah so um so I had been you know I'd let go of dieting right I mean and and not just like you know, traditional Atkins, Weight Watcher, like I'd let go of even the hunger and fullness diet. I'd let go of the don't eat emotionally diet. Like I was truly just like eating what felt good to me, like whenever it felt good to me, like whether that was like, I want a cupcake when I'm sad or, you know, I'm hungry or whatever. Like I was just, I was, I was intuitive eating in the sense of like following my intuition, right? Like actually Mm -hmm. my intuition, not just my hunger signals, no matter what, just like what felt holistically good to me, emotionally, spiritually, and otherwise. So um, I was just a few years into that and, you know, just like, you know, I was, I was actually, I think I'd already started blogging at this point. And I was like, you know, thinking about like, okay, this is interesting information, you know, gluten like may have this this impact on me. And so I tried to cut it out, you know, because the way that you, you know, one of the easiest ways to figure out if you have a gluten intolerance specifically uh, is to cut it out for 30 days, reintroduce it, see how you feel. This is like a common way. Mm-hmm. So I tried to cut it out for three day, 30 days, couldn't do it. I was like, nope. I immediately felt crazy. Nope. Like I'm eating everything. Nope. Right. Like I started like feeling more like, oh my gosh, like, you know, like wanting to eat lots of stuff, like kind of felt like that sort of like deprivation based sort of like bingey, like being a kid in a toy store, like yeah. not being able to touch a toy. And I was like, nope, not ready. And I stopped. And I was like, okay, a few months passed by. I'm like, she's like, oh, you know, the gluten thing. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, these particular symptoms that I was dealing with were kind of flaring up again. I was like, oh God, these symptoms really fucking suck. I was like, okay, you know, let me give it another try. If it triggers, you know, disordered shit, like, like I'm letting it go. Like I'd rather, I literally at that point was at the place where I'd like, I'd rather deal with the physical symptoms, right? They weren't 
that was sort of that was again my personal perspective at the at that particular moment in time. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh yeah, I try to get him like, oh no no, like uh again, like felt really restricted, didn't do it, let it go. A few months pass, right? And I'm sort of I'm getting deeper and deeper as time goes on. I'm getting deeper and deeper into like allowance, right? Like I'm getting deeper and deeper, more and more comfortable with allowance, right? Like it took years and years for the charge of food and those that fear of deprivation to really leave my body on like a cellular or spiritual level, if you will. Like it took it takes time, you know, it takes a lot of time. But so, you know, a few months, another few months passed. The symptoms were kind of like eh, rearing their ugly head. I'm like, oh, fuck, these symptoms really suck. So I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm going to try again. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to like really, really make sure that I have all of the glutinous, all of the gluten-free treats that I could possibly want to have in my house. I'm going to make sure that I have a gluten-free version of like every fucking like pancakes, cupcake, right? Like I'm going to make sure that I have the gluten, all the gluten-free things all the gluten-free substitutes so I can really like make sure that I that I really feel like I can satisfy myself to the best of my ability, knowing that I might not be able to satisfy my 100% every whim, right? Like if I get invited to go have dinner and they're eating the glutinous dessert, I might not be able to partake, but like doing the best I can to like really take care of myself in the situation, make sure I can give it myself what I need. And I also did this thing where I gave myself permission to like basically reactively eat all the gluten-free shit that I wanted. And I actually, meaning like if I ended up eating a sleeve of gluten-free, you know, cookies because I felt like a little deprived, so be it, you know, like that's okay. Like if I end up eating, like whatever I end up eating, if I end up eating a bunch more food that month because I, um, you know, I'm feeling a little bit deprived, which kind of makes sense giving my history when I give up gluten, like that's okay. I give myself, like I give myself full permission to do that. And that's pretty much what happened. And that was the first time I basically did the 30 month, I did the 30 day experiment. I actually got through the 30 days without eating gluten. I did, I think I even gained, I probably even gained a little bit of weight. I don't really know. I don't weigh myself, but like, you know, like I was definitely felt like I was like eating a lot more stuff. I was eating a lot of like gluten-free stuff because I really was like, you know, just sort of, again, sort of reacting to that, like, oh God, I just don't want to feel deprived sort of thing. But I was cool with it. You know, like I just, I just accepted that that was like a thing that might happen when I was going through this experiment that I might feel a little deprived and I actually might end up eating more of like the gluten-free treats and all of those things, Mm -hmm. but it was worth it to me. It was just like totally okay. I was like totally okay with that because this was not about weight, right? This was about me figuring out if this particular food really was fucking with my body, right? And like me really like wanting to care for my body. It was really coming from a place of self-care, so much so that I was like, you know what, if I gain weight during this experiment because I've eaten so much gluten-free crap, right? Like, if I gain weight during this experiment, like, I'm fine with that because this isn't about weight. This is about me actually wanting to heal my body, right? Like, heal my body of actual physical symptoms. So, you know, and I think that is a really important point. Like, I was willing to gain weight because of reactive eating, right? Like, I was willing to gain weight to figure out if I was allergic to gluten because, like, figuring out if I was allergic to gluten and taking care of my body was more important to me than whether or not I gained weight. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so I got through the 30 days, ate a bunch of gluten-free shit, probably put on a little weight, but, like, you know, whatever. Um, and then I... Yeah, and then I, I, you know, broke the 30-day thing, ate a giant pa- like plate of pancakes, 
giant fucking plate of pancakes because I was like, hell yes, right? Like, I'm going to eat real pancakes. And and I think that there was a part of me that didn't think that I was gluten intolerant. I think there was a part of me that thought it wouldn't be that bad. Wrong. I got so sick. I was like shitting for a week. Like it was like, like it was just like horribly painful <laughs> stomach diarrhea, like just nightmare. Like it was, I literally was sick. I ate this plate of pancakes and I got like sick a few hours later and was just like sick for a week. And then I was like, huh, that's interesting information. I guess I am fucking intolerant to gluten. <laughs> um, and then from that point forward, after being that sick, it was like, you know, talk about intuitive eating. It was like, I didn't want the gluten, you right. know? Like, I was just like, man, like I, I would just do not, I was like, that is shit is gonna make me feel ill. Like, I do not want it. You know, it was actually, it was so much easier to quote unquote, to like be, I mean, I don't even want to use the word give up gluten because I'll like have a bite of something and take a risk or like, you know, if something has like, you know, a little flour in a sauce or something, like I'm not super crazy. I'm also not celiac, which helps. Um, but I think, you know, I, if I know my celiac clients, they sort of relate to the story about how when, after I got really, really sick, it was, um, my perspective kind of changed. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I just, like, that was sort of the beginning. And, like, I always say to myself, like, I'm allowed to have gluten. Like, it's just, like, do I want to have gluten given right. what I know about it and given the way I know how it makes me feel? And I still give myself the opportunity, right? Like, my, there was my, um, there was my boyfriend. It turns out that the, theoretically, I think it was named by Yelp or some magazine or I don't know, the best croissant in North America is sold at a bakery in San Francisco. Oh. Of course, I went there with my boyfriend and they looked fucking amazing. And I was just like, you know what? Like, I don't care. I'm going to like have some of this croissant. And I had some, and I, and I, in my head, I was making a conscious choice. I was like, if this makes me sick to my stomach, that is fine because I'm going to taste the best croissant in North America. Right. So it was like, I gave myself, how was it? Best choice to eat the thing that wasn't going to make me feel good, that might fuck up my body temporarily, because that was like a personal choice that I was willing to make. So that's another really huge thing is like, yeah. I actually have permission to eat things that I'm allergic to. It's just that if I eat them, I might get sick and I have to deal with that consequence. What I will say is that what I don't experience is like feeling of shame, feeling of failure. Like after I had that croissant, even though I was like, you know, maybe having had a little like digestive upset afterwards I did not think to myself oh my gosh I suck I fell off the wagon I ate a croissant right like it was a con it was a totally conscious choice it was like yeah I ate a croissant and now I have to sit on the toilet like no like that's just the choice that I made just like if I went out drinking on my 21st birthday and I had a hangover the next day yeah right like I love that comparison that was helpful to yeah. me looking yeah. at food like alcohol in that way was really helpful I know that there are some people out there who are going to be like, but food makes me so, so, so sick. It makes me shit my pants. I'm like, I still binge on it. And you know what I'm going to say to those people? Um, you probably still have shame and diet mentality around this. Because one thing that is really important to recognize, first of all, I couldn't do any of this until I had actually overcome a substantial, substantial amount of diet mentality, which is why I started with my story with kind of this readiness, right? And like right. giving myself permission to not be ready. Um, when, when I, I think there's so, so many, when people have diet mentality around medical restrictions, for instance, 
in reality, diet mentality always wins, mm. right? So as far as the, how you're going to react to this experience, right? Like if you have diet mentality around uh, something that you're theoretically supposed to avoid for medical reasons, the diet mentality and the suffering caused by diet mentality, whether that be binge eating behaviors or other kinds of suffering, shame, guilt, all the stuff, right? Yeah. That diet mentality is always going to have whatever effects it has on you, irrespective of how sick the thing might make you feel, right? Because diet mentality is so primal, right? Diet mentality, and I'll just speak for binge eaters. Let's just talk about bit for binge eaters for a second. Mm -hmm. I think people are really shocked, like, oh my God, it's so horrible. I can't, I'm such a fucked up sick person that I eat this thing that makes me sick and I binge on this thing that makes me sick. I am such a horrible, disgusting person, right? I'm, I must be so sick in the head. Why is this happening to me? And the reality of the situation is if you're living in diet mentality and you struggle with binge eating, binge eating is a natural, biological, I would make the argument healthy response to a threat of deprivation. If your body or mind, or if there is like any psychological or biological threat of starvation, which is like the number one threat of death in your evolution as a human, right? Your body will not give a shit just cares about not starving to death, right? And so even if that's not a real threat in quotes, even if that's just a psychological threat by diet mentality, you're going to probably react by hoarding food, right? Irrespective of how it makes you feel. I can make the same argument for people who binge eat to the point of feeling physically ill, which by the way, I used to do, right? Like it didn't matter that I was feeling physically ill. I would keep eating anyway. And that was very, I recognize now that was very much sort of like a, psychological trigger brought on by a, my 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 a real fear like on my sub, on sort of like a subconscious evolutionary level if you will that the food was going to be taken away from me right yeah. after years and years of trying to starve myself right after years and years of trying to deprive myself of the thing i need to survive the thing that humans are literally psychologically, biologically designed to go after more than anything else. Like we are animals. The only, like the number one thing we want is food security. If we deprive ourselves of food security, we are going to hoard. It doesn't matter how full you are. Doesn't matter what the hell you're eating, right? If you are dealing with a threat to your food security, your animal biological instincts are going to overcome you eventually, right? And again, like I think anyone who struggles with binge eating will understand where this comes from. Yeah. Um, so yes, that, that's my spiel on that. Whew. Okay, I feel really good. I feel like I have so many important Isabel notes that like really impacted my life in the last few years and I feel like we hit so many of them. I did your program as you know and people listening know what what's new with you business-wise? What is your program Stop Fighting Food? How do people get more information about it? Tell me everything. Ooh, um, well, so for those of you who are new to my work, yeah. definitely check out my video training series. That's the real place to start, right? Like if you're yeah. kind of at all curious, or I think that, uh, Katie, you're probably gonna have a link in the show notes to stop yeah. making video training series. Yeah, and, and I want to say like, too, yeah. I, about the video training series, that is such a great entry point into this work. I remember I did the video training series first, and then mm -hmm. I don't think I took your course I wasn't I didn't do it until after or like maybe yeah. a year later yeah, maybe yeah. I learned about those concepts but just everyone do that no matter what 
because yeah. it that right there you'll get such a good we went over a lot today but like that is just a really good well-rounded place to start with Isabel's work no matter what yeah it's just like really like very simple like easy easy to understand like entree into these concepts and sort of described in a way that you wouldn't necessarily typically hear them from another person who talks about emotional eating or talks about intuitive eating or talks about these things right a little yeah. bit of a different perspective you're going to get um, but and like really, really great entry. Yeah. Thank you. And it's free. Yeah. And it's free. So might as well start there. Um, so yeah, so the video training series, again, link, I think there's gonna be a link in the show yeah. notes for the staffing food video yeah. training. Series. That's, that's the best place for people to start. Um, and then, you know, I also offer, you know, at some point you did the masterclass, Katie, which is my yeah. group coaching program, which is really like, you know, that's my ultimate flagship program. Um, and it, I think this fall might end up, I'm not a hundred percent sure of this. But I think this might be, um, the last time that I do like a full four months of live coaching for people. So if you have known about this program in the past and have been like, Oh, I'll do it next year. Um, I'm just warning you, this might be the last time really to get all, you know, the, the, um, like the, you know, a a strong ability to work with me one-on-one on on a very regular basis for an extent or not one-on-one in like a group setting and talk to me on conference calls and stuff, um, in a group setting for, for, for a hot, for a, for a while. Um, so yeah, so I would, yeah, so that's, yeah, so that's coming up. I think I don't. Yeah, I'm not sure when this episode's launching, but I imagine that the masterclass will be coming up in the next uh, week or two after yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. And if anyone has any personal questions about it, as from someone who has done it about how it works, anything, I am totally qualified to answer those because I have done it. Yeah. Um, so, okay, I want to wrap up with the questions I ask everyone because they have changed since you've been on the show. So just kind of distill these into, like, one sentence or so. Cool? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. If you had to say what your relationship with food and your body looks like today in about a sentence, what would it be? Um, you know, my body's like a person in my family today it's like she's like you know sometimes I even think about her like a she right like she's like a person that I that I have a relationship with like I have a positive relationship with my body it's like hey are you hungry what do you need girl how you doing right like we're cool like we're just good like I'm you know like the way I would think about like I I like to think I would think about it how I had if I had a child you know I like to think about my body the way I might think about my theoretical child that I don't yet have um you know family member that I really love that I you know I, I recognize as somebody who you know, beats my heart for me and, you know, like keeps me alive, keeps me breathing. And, you know, we're just, we're kind of buddies, you know, like we, yeah. you know, we're, we're, we are good to each other. You know, she keeps me alive and I make sure that she's fed and, and like she gets whatever else she needs, right. Whatever movement she needs, whatever, you know, nutri- nourishment she needs. Like, I just want to, you know, kind of take care of her as, as like a living human breathing mammal. Like I said, I love um, that. Yeah. And so, you know, as far as my relationship with food, you know, my relationship with food kind of like reflects that, like, you know, like I, I don't, quite frankly, it's like, I don't think about it all the time. I I think, and I think that that's actually, I should really harp on that for a second. I really should sink into like explaining that to people because I think that that's what people don't believe when they hear my story and they hear, you know, <laughs> the, the very rampant eating disorder that I struggled with for so, so, so long. Um, and again, sort of these low bottom, the low bottom diet binge cycle or low bottom, you know, binge eater, like 
hardcore in and out of inpatient rehab. I think I did, I did, you know, two, you know, at least two inpatient stints in rehab and then like clinical. I was just, I have a very, very low bottom story of food obsession and, and quote food issues and, you know, yo-yoing swings up and down of 40, 50 pounds as young as the age of high school, you know, and I truly like, it's just like at this point, food is just not a thing that I think about throughout the day very much unless I'm like hungry or if I, you know, occasionally if I'm like, Oh, like I wouldn't mind like a little like pleasure, a little comfort, you know, that'll come up. Sure. It's never, it's not like it used to be where constant running ticker tape through my head all day long or like negative body image thoughts, like feeling like, Oh my gosh, you're so ugly. So disgusting. Your body's not going to, we're just like the ticker tape that ran through my head all day long. Like if I was, you know, around like a guy that I was attracted to, or if I was like at a party wearing like a specific kind of dress, like I was constantly just feeling self-conscious. Like that was, again, it was the running tip ticker tape all day long behind my head was just like, what are you going to eat? What did you eat in the past? What should you eat? Oh my God, don't eat that. Oh my God, but you want food. Oh my God. You know, it was just the constant dialogue, the constant background noise of my life was, what did you eat? What do you want to eat? What shouldn't you eat? Did you eat? Uh Oh, you ate that. Oh my God, you suck for eating that. Your body's disgusting. You need to lose weight. Okay. I'm going to lose weight. Like it was just like a constant running background, background noise of my life for like, the whole first quarter of my life, basically. Um, and now it's just, it really is just food. And I think that's really annoying, right? It's, again, I was a person who I was so annoyed when people would say, what do you mean it's just food? I was so annoyed when people would say that to me when I was struggling. And like, all I can say now is like, that's actually a thing that you can have through doing body image work, through letting go of the charge that you hold around food with, as a result of diet culture and diet mentality. Right. And so, you know, I'm, I'm just really committed to helping women get to that place where food really is just food. That is a reality. That is a thing that can be achieved. Yeah. Um, and like, I feel like, you know, you, you might think it's impossible, but like, it's not like it's real, but it does require doing work that can sometimes be uncomfortable. And it definitely requires body image work, which a lot of people don't want to do. Um, sorry guys, you know, you, again, you have two choices, stay obsessed with food or do the body image work. Right. <laughs> um, and that's the end of that story. Question. Do you ever still have a feeling of feeling insecure in your body or ever having a bad body image moment? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Again, they're not like they were a long time ago and I have so many different skills to deal with them on multiple levels um, today than I did when I was younger. They don't, they don't run my life. <laughs> right. But yeah, sure. Of course. Like I remember when I first started dating the guy that I'm currently dating and like he made a comment that he had, you know, like, or I saw a picture of the girl that he used to date and I thought to myself, oh my God, she's thinner than me. You know, like, I think that, that mm -hmm. that's, that's just, that's fat phobia, right? Like, yeah. but the difference is that like, I recognize that as fat phobia and I understand it as fat phobia and I have like a totally different way that I manage it and that I relate to it today. Like it doesn't run my life. Like I, I can deal with fat phobia because I, I can, I I have almost it's like my you know I was talking about this with that colleague Virgie Tovar who you know well who's a very mm -hmm. amazing body activist she said you know really what's different is my relationship not only to food and my body has changed my relationship with fat phobia has changed right like the mm -hmm. way I operate and the way I manage fat phobia is totally different than it was back then 
when every time I would have a fat phobic thought, it was just like, oh my gosh, like it's true, it's real, I do suck, right? Like I took it on, I didn't even recognize it as a fat phobic thought, I just rec- I just thought of it as like a, me legitimately having the wrong kind of body and needing to do something about it, which would then become like a spiral of dieting and feeling worse and judging myself on the basis of that, right? And it just, it took, it started to take over my life rather than just being like, oh yeah, that makes sense. It's much more rational today. It's more like, oh yeah, that makes sense that I would have feelings about that given the culture that I live in. And like, I have tools to deal with that way of feeling. I have space for having those feelings. I can like think about them in a sort of more rational and, and like socially, even socially just way. Right. Like I remember during that period of time, really like kind of moving through it, saying to myself, you know what, like, yeah, she was thinner. And like, if he doesn't like your body the way it is right now, then like, he's just not the right person for you. Mm-hmm. Right. And just being able to have very, very different level of communication with myself and dialogue with myself about the realities of fat phobia. I mean, that I think is the big myth with eating disorder recovery is that people assume that recovery means you're unaffected by fat phobia and fat, or, and, and again, they don't even use that language, right? Like people assume that recovery means no bad body image thoughts. And the reality of the situation is like fat phobia, right? The, 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 the I, attitudes, beliefs, ideas that lead us to believe that thin is good and fat is bad is this, is this cultural atmosphere that we're dealing, dealing with all the time. And of course it's going to affect me from time to time. Very much just like my, you know, ideas about what it means to be a good woman or a right woman or perform my gender correctly are going to affect me. Of course they're going to affect me. They're going to affect me for the rest of my life. But how I deal with those thoughts is so different today now that I have the language and the understanding of what is of this actually being like of me actually myself actually being a victim to this social movement and being excuse me not the movement of this sort of social issue and being able to work with work with my emotions around it on a different level like it's just it's just night and day yeah I'm really glad that you shared that because I think it's so important to know that it still comes up even for you in this work and you're just looking at it differently. I think that's yeah. really helpful. Yeah, I think recovery is not the absence of fat phobia. Fat phobia exists and it's going to continue to exist. The the recovery is like what's your relationship to fat phobia, right? Yeah. Like how do you how does it like how do you allow it to affect your life today? Or maybe not, maybe allow is the wrong word, right? Because we're not always in control of that. But like, how do you deal with it when it comes up, right? And most people, until they get a social justice education around this stuff, have like no concept of that whatsoever. And so they just keep thinking that they're failing at recovering from whatever they're struggling with around food. Yeah. And they're not, Mm. you know. So good. Okay, another um, quick one. I wrote this book about journaling last year, as you know. Have you ever journaled? Do you write a lot for your work? Do you ever find writing cathartic? Is it something you ever recommend to your clients or students? What are your thoughts and feelings on writing and journaling? Um, I think writing and journaling is a really, really, really great tool for lots of people. I mean, I don't mandate any particular writing or journaling exercises, but what I often, what I've been taught that's been most helpful for me about writing and journaling is like, the act of writing and journaling, particularly with pen and paper, actually helps you process your thoughts because it physically slows you down, 
right? Like, it's again, especially with pen and paper, not necessarily the case with typing. Typing also slows you down, but especially with pen and paper, there's something about actually having to slow down your thoughts by writing them out that's like incredibly grounding and really, really helps you process what's going on, right? And I think one of the things that so many women with food issues, and I would just think humans in general struggle with, right? It's just such fast, like lightning speed noise in their head. Like, oh my God, what did I eat? It's like this, like, it's like our thoughts are happening so quickly. They can be like overwhelming. It's like we're totally overwhelmed by this noise. It's like chatter in our head all day long, constantly. And I think for me, one of the things that I've taught about, taught about journaling, like just being able to actually slow down the voice, which is sort of a natural outcome of writing again, especially with pen and paper. Um, yeah. And so like, I'm a big fan of morning pages. I certainly don't do it every day. It's like kind of a miracle if I actually do do it, but like, it, the times that I have and in the moments where I've been more serious about it, like it just, it's like incredibly grounding exercise. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's sort of my perspective on journaling. Cool. Love that. Okay. These ones will, will actually be a bit quicker. Best thing you've eaten okay. in the last week. Oh, uh, <laughs> probably this like so there's this like specialty cheese shop in my neighborhood and they like sell a lot of like really amazing raw cheeses. And so probably like some raw cheese. I don't know if anyone out here is like raw cheese aficionados, but my favorite is Oma, OMA, early like cheese crack for like people who are hardcore into cheese. (laughs) Nice. Um, okay. Greatest lesson on relationships. Um, you don't have as much control as you think you do, <laughs> which is kind of like the answer to all of life, yeah. in my opinion. Um, but that's really a lesson that I've learned hardcore in relationships, um, especially in the past, like I would say, like a couple years, um, is sort of recognizing like fighting, really like fighting this idea of like what you think a relationship should look like fighting the idea of whether like your thoughts about whether or not you should be in a relationship, like all of these like ideas of what it should be and trying to like make it look that way and trying to like control it all the time. Actually for me really mirrored trying to control food. Right. And I came up a lot of the same like obstacles and frustrations in many ways in relationships as I did with food. Um, and so I've really been sort of practicing, um, applying some of the deeper spiritual lessons that helped me in my recovery around food, which we didn't even really get into today, but Katie, you know what I'm talking about, and some of you who know my work may or may not know what I'm talking about. I really spent a lot of time applying those concepts to uh, my intimate relationships, and God, I feel like I could write a course on how to not feel crazy in relationships. Like that's uh, gonna be my, you that's should. Gonna be my, <laughs> gonna be my next product. Yeah, that's gonna be my next program, is like how to not feel crazy in relationships <laughs> yeah um or how to not feel crazy around dating if you will Great. um because I've just learned so much and I feel like my entire I feel like I've had like a recovery process in my dating life like I feel like I'm recovering from like desperation to be in a relationship I feel like I'm recovering from trying to control any existing relationships and like I just feel like I'm in recovery from a lot of diet mentality in my in my relationships that kept me miserable in relationships for years and uh I've learned so much so yeah that's my next program well maybe that's what we'll be talking about in the next podcast let's do it okay greatest lesson on spirituality like what do you think happens when we when we die where are you with that today 
I actually don't care what happens. Like, that's not my business where I go, where I die. Um, like, that's not something I need to think about right now. What I need to think about is like how I'm going to live every day with integrity and to the fullest right now while I'm alive. Love that. What about around spirituality? Any lesson that you want um, to highlight? Yeah, so... Uh, I feel like a big one you've taught me is surrender. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of like my, my anthem for sure. Um, and it kind of goes, you know, the, the concept of surrender goes hand in hand with this concept of, of present moment, which I sort of just alluded to in your in your question about the afterlife. So I'm just sort of, if I am doing what feels right and with an integrity and like, if I am doing my best to be like my like fullest, most like aligned human today, like whatever is supposed to happen to me in the future is what's going to happen to me. Like all I can do is just be in this present moment. Whatever will come, will come from that, like from yeah. like, at, like sprouting from that. And I think in within that sentiment, you hear themes of surrender within that sentiment you hear themes of present momentness and you hear themes of like you know like trust yeah so yeah okay this is the second to last question so it's a way to just have you recommend things so it can be something that you really liked recently or it can be all-time favorites you can choose so you're trapped on a deserted island and you can bring with you one movie one book one tv show and one food, what would you bring? Um, when Harry Met Sally, that's like my favorite movie. Like if I've ever written an like anywhere on the internet that they asked me my favorite movie, I am consistent. It is no joke. It is When Harry Met Sally. I love um, that movie too. <laughs> number two, uh, you said favorite book. Yep. It, well, th- I don't know if it's my favorite book, but it's definitely the, yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and say that it's definitely the book that I would bring with me to a desert island. And that's When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron. I don't know if you know about this about me because I kind of have gotten sort of more and more into Pema as over the past like couple of years. But like, yeah. I feel like I really found my spiritual center with her and like, cool. like the deepest expression of my current spiritual, like what I consider to be my spiritual center today, like where I'm at in my life right now and sort of where I've been at for, I would say the past couple of years, like has been more heavily influenced by her than like anyone. So yeah. And that particular book really, like changed my whole life. So when things fall apart by Pema Chodron, when Harry met Sally, what was the other question? I'll tell you, but I have one thing to ask you. I think at one time you listened and read Abraham Hicks. Um, how did, how did you get into that? Is that still something that you, that helps you? Oh, you know what? I mean, yeah, no, I mean, I'm familiar with Abraham Hicks and I definitely have like perused, um, I don't even remember when I must have talked to you about that. You must have like caught me on a day when I was like having an Abraham Hicks moment. <laughs> I um, must have because it's been very helpful to me and yeah, something yeah. That, that I really like. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've been influenced by so many people over the years. Like, yeah. I mean, like you, right? Like where we, we live and breathe this stuff. So I've been influenced. Yeah. And like Abraham Hicks is Hicks is, uh, the, the work of Abraham Hicks has certainly been like a like a bullet point on my journey. Yeah, um, and I'm, gra- I'm I'm grateful for every bullet point of my journey. Yeah, so. yeah, same. Yeah. Okay, the <laughs> other one was movie and TV show and food. Or we already did movie, so TV show yeah. and food. Um. Well, TV show would have to be Friends. Oh, um, of course. Yeah, classic. Very, Although very it's hard, but. <laughs> 
Yeah, it, yeah. I was gonna say it's you really to hard to say that publicly because, like, now at this point in my life, when I watch Friends, like there are so many parts of that show that like make me cringe. Um, like particularly the Fat Monica uh, narrative. But that was my favorite show for so long, which kind of just goes to show like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, I was like watching that show. I was like growing up watching that show. And I didn't think the Fat Monica narrative was problematic at all. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, like this is this is the issue that we're dealing with. Right. Is that fat phobia is just so normalized. We live and breathe it. We don't even recognize it as problematic. Yeah. Um, now, literally, I watch the fat phobic narrative, the, the fat Monica narrative. And it like kind of makes me angry. Yeah, um, it was also the 90s. And like back that it was like back that it was like, again, it was like no one was talking about this. I had no idea. There, so, yeah, there's like a headline for I think like an onion article that says like feminist must, you know, forget all of her values to watch TV or enjoy culture. <laughs> like, yeah, you kind of yeah. have to turn on the blinders to sometimes just like enjoy a, a piece of culture, especially if yeah. it's older. I, I was going to say, especially if it's older. I can't imagine the Fat Monica narrative passing in no. today's television no. culture. Like, there's no way in hell. I mean, not to say that there isn't fat phobia in today's television. Of course, there's tons of it. But that narrative is, like, so, like, over the top. Yeah, like, it's, it's really so, bad. like, in your... It's so bad. It's so over the top that you're just, like, ugh. Like, it just makes me cringe so hard watching it. And it, it almost feels like... I imagine how people feel like watching like, I mean, again, I don't want to like compare oppressions, but like, you know, like if you look at like movies from like the fifties or earlier yeah. and like all of these sort of like, just like, yeah. like racist narratives or sexist narratives that were like never, you would never see on TV today. Not that racism and sexism don't exist on TV today as well, but it's like that intensity, that sort of level that like you, that wouldn't, that wouldn't, that just wouldn't fly on in sort of like modern shows. Um, yeah, that's kind of how I feel when I'm like, oh, this must be how people feel. Like, I'm like, that's how I feel when I watch the fat narrative, the fat Monica narrative on Friends today. But that being said, it's also really, it is really hard for me and it is really confronting for me in some ways because, man, I love that show, you know, and I, and I grew up really feeling like they were my friends. I mean, like, that's the big joke with friends, right? I think a lot of people grew up feeling that way about friends. Like, people grew up feeling like, you know, like these, like, like, I, like, I loved the cast of friends as if they were in my family. Like, there are nights when I would prefer to hang out with them on TV than hang out with real people. Like, that's the truth. You know, and so it it is, it's really, it is, it's kind of hard. The, the fat Monica narrative makes me kind of sad. But yeah, I, I, I still say Friends is probably my favorite show, even though it is so problematic, because it's like, like, sometimes I think of that show as like family or something. Like, yeah. it's very, I had a, I had a very, very strong relationship with that show for like, 10 years, 20 years. at least. Like, yeah, like for yeah. like over a decade, like I was a hardcore watcher of yeah. that show. I think it's good um, to hear you say that too. Like, it's good to just be like, this is all true, but it's okay to watch an episode of Friends and it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, Paul, it's complicated. It's really complicated, right? And like, I think it, it is also relevant to like, you know, notice sort of like, wow. You know, so I could look at the fat narr- Monica narrative and, and say to myself, wow, look at how far we've come. Yeah. Because yeah, that fat, exactly. the fat Monica narrative, you know, it wasn't that long ago that Friends was made, and that narrative, I I hesitate to say this, but I'm pretty confident that would not exist today on a major television show unless they wanted to get ripped to shreds by like every fucking digital magazine on the planet. Yeah. So totally. yeah, like, um, yeah. So I guess that's 
you know. But okay. yeah, it is complicated, right? It feels yeah. pol- pol- identity politics are complex, and that's okay. Yeah, definitely. Okay, say something music that you're listening to or that you would bring on a deserted island, and then I promise we'll tie this up with a bow with one final question. Um. Um, so I love EDM. Like, I don't know if people know that about me. I don't know if that's like a thing that surprises people. I feel like, well, yeah, I don't know. They may or may not be surprised based on like the music that I (laughs) tend to pick when I play. I don't know. I guess, I guess I don't play that much music publicly, but yeah, it's like, it's like a thing about me. I love dance music and specifically electronic music. Um, and I love, yeah, like I love, I don't know. And in San Francisco, that was like one of the things I fell in love with about San Francisco. It's like, it's such a thing here, like going to like shows and like, you know, specifically EDM shows are like, is such, there's such a huge, big culture around that here. And it's like my favorite thing to do is like, I feel like that's when I feel close to God is like when I'm like at like electronic music shows, like dancing and like, it's like I lose my sense of like being like, like I lose self-conscious, like I have moments of like literally losing self-consciousness and being like so fully in my body and like having like no even like concept of separation between me and like the rest of the room. Like it's just, yeah. So I am, you know, for all the negative things that people, I mean, I don't know if that's controversial or not. I feel like there are people who are maybe uh, (laughs) surprised by that, but it's true. I love EDM. That's cool. I love that. All right. Well, since you've been on this podcast, the name has changed. I you remember the Wellness Wonderland, I'm sure, but now it is called Let It Out. So when I offer that to you to let it out, is there anything that you still feel like you want to get out or let out? Did I ring you dry? Um, I think we did pretty well today. I so I'm going to call it a wrap. I'm pretty proud of us. Thank you so much for everything, for coming back on the show, for opening my eyes to all of this and realizing that there's another way to see it when it comes to fat phobia and the world that we live in and diet culture. And you really changed my life. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you for having me as always. I love talking to you. And um, yeah, thank you for everyone who's listening. This was this was really, really fun show. Check out her video series in the show notes, and I'll be telling you more about that in a moment. All right, guys, that was the conversation with Isabel. I think we said it all. If you want to check out her free video training series, you might as well. It's free, like I said. Go to bit.ly slash stopfightingfoodkatie. That's bit.ly slash stopfightingfoodkatie. That just lets her know that I sent you from the podcast. Check it out. If you want to do her masterclass and have questions, let me know. If you don't, that's cool too. Thank you so much for listening this week. As always, I can't wait to have you back next week. I hope to see a lot of you tomorrow at the end in Brooklyn for the live episode. And one more time, thank you to FreshBooks.com. FreshBooks is the easy to use online cloud accounting software that I love. It makes me feel like I am so legit with what I'm sending people as invoices. You can add in your logo, you can change the colors. It's so easy to print a profit and loss with FreshBooks. I love them. They're my favorite cloud accounting service provider. I love them. 
And you might as well check them out too because right now you can get a free unrestricted 30-day trial if you go to freshbooks.com slash let it out and enter let it out in the how did you hear about us section. That's freshbooks.com slash let it out and enter let it out in the how did you hear about us section. Thank you so much, Freshbooks. I love you guys. I love you for listening. And the emoji for this week's episode is the black moon with the face. So not just the fully dark moon, but the one that is dark and also has the face. I think he's pretty goofy looking. My friend mentioned that emoji recently and I was like, yeah, that's a great emoji. Pretty underused too. And I think this week with the eclipse, it seems right. Did you guys watch the eclipse? What did you think? It is 1.54 right now and I have not watched it because it hasn't happened yet, but I'm hoping to see it. I wonder what it's going to be like. Let's go check it out. All right. Can't wait to talk to you soon. Love you. Bye. Oh, and quickly, if you're new, this whole emoji weird thing, basically it just lets me know that you're still listening to my rambling. So you can tweet it at me. You can comment it on my Instagram. I'm at Katie Dalebout on Instagram, on Twitter, on Snapchat. Come hang out with me there. Let's be friends on all of social media. Okay, bye for real.